Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we'll jump in. One of the... Uh, you know, I'll tell you a story. It's one of my favorite stories, which is um, many years ago, uh, I, I attended a, a class. It was a, an introduction to, to Torah. Um, and, uh, but it was very sort of philosophically based. And, and so someone who maybe had learned a little bit beforehand could, could also benefit from it. Uh, and so, uh, so I went and uh, I loved the teacher there. And, and, uh, but it was really, you know, it was really primarily being offered for people who were just uh, getting an introduction to what Torah is all about. So the very first day, first class, uh, the teacher stood up before the class and he had a blackboard next to him and said, what, um, what is the Torah? And someone raised their hand and said, uh, a book of laws. And he said, great. And he writes down a book of laws. And then someone else raises their hand and says, a book of history. And he says, great. And he writes down a book of history. Now, I had been learning for, uh, you know, for a while before this. And I, I raised my hand and he says, okay, what's the Torah? And I said, the infinite compressed into the finite. And he said, all right, why don't we hold off on that for a moment? You know, so it was it's a little more than he wanted to address at that moment. But the... The idea or the, 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 the phenomenon that the, that the Torah is not just a book, but, but is, is through what we call, um, Kabbalistically speaking, tzimtzum, which is, which is contraction, that it's God's will. It's more than a book. It's more than a document. It's, it's actually God's will that's been miraculously compressed, condensed into letters so that we can actually read it, so that it actually exists in this revealed state. This is really what the Torah is. Um, this is how we can understand, and we've talked about this uh, in, in, in great depth, but I'll just touch upon the concept here. This is how we can say something as, as wild, or rather I should say how the, how the Gomorrah can say something as, as, as wild as, as the fact that the Torah existed 974 generations before the world existed. In other words, how can the Torah, which most of us think about as a, as a scroll or a book, how can it exist before the world existed? So, so the fact is, if you understand that it's really an expression of God's will, then you understand that, well, God exists before the world existed, and God had a will for creation, which is why he created the world. So, therefore, of course the Torah existed before the world existed. Um, but to understand this, you have to, under, you have, to have a much more metaphysical notion of, of what the Torah actually is and what each letter of the Torah actually is. In other words, the, the, uh, each of the letters are, are just sort of like the, just the, 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 the imprint of something that, that extends much, much higher. I'll give you a, uh, I'll give you a, a metaphor or, 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 or a way to, to further under, uh, understand what I'm, what I'm trying to talk about. You know, each person is compared, we say each person has a letter in the Torah. And we're going to go more into this idea right now. We're specifically going to be talking about the eight letters of Vayechi Yaakov, which are the letters that are written that in a way should not be written. And I'll go more into depth later what I mean by that. Of course they should be written, they're part of the Torah. But they're occupying the white space of the Torah. The space that's normally left empty between Parshas. So, 
So let me go a little bit further so you understand what I'm saying. Rabbi Wolfson points out something very, very interesting, which is that, normally speaking, what's famous about Parsha's Vayechi is that it's a closed Parsha. It's a Parsha Stuma, as, as the rabbis call it, which means a, a closed Parsha. And we'll see there's an amazing gematria to Parsha Stuma, a couple of amazing gematrias that Rabbi Wolfson brings down. You'll see how all of this ties to the end of days and is um, really quite phenomenal, and, and talking about us, our, our generation as well. But again, all, all these are previews to, to what we'll be discussing a little bit later. But just to understand um, the basic concept for right now, between each Parsha, there's, there are supposed to be nine empty spaces, meaning the, the, the size of a letter. So, so there's a gap of nine letters between each Parsha. Okay? Now, now, there's only the gap of one letter at the beginning of Parsha's Vayechi. And this closed-off nature is equated with the rabbis with the beginning of exile. You see, we learn from, Rashi points it out, in the beginning of uh, Sefer Vayikra, in the very first Rashi in, in Sefer Vayikra, one of the amazing things that we see about the writing of the Torah scrolls itself, all of the white spaces, the long white spaces in the Torah, were, were times where God was giving Moshe Rabbeinu time to contemplate and meditate deeply on what had just been revealed to him when God gave over the Torah to Moshe. So the very fact that this part of the Torah is closed off means that, so to speak, and that it's the beginning of the exile, the Egyptian exile, means that part of being in exile is being denied the time to contemplate and the time to think deeply about the nature of our existence. When we stop thinking, when we're running around like crazy and busy, 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 this is where exile sets in. And we're not actually under, able, able to understand the true nature of the world and the true nature of what our mission in the world is. But I want to backtrack a second, because we're still on this point. The fact that, normally speaking, there are no, the, the space of nine empty letters between Parshas. There's only one empty space between the previous Parsha and this Parsha, Parshas Vayechi. Those eight letters, says Rabbi Wolfson, exactly correlate with the eight letters of the first two words of the Parsha, which is Vayechi Yaakov. So what does that mean? So that means that those words, Vayechi, Vayechi Yaakov, and Yaakov lived, and of course, on a deeper level, it's about to tell you that Yaakov died, so you've got this amazing paradox over here, where it's talking about Yaakov living, and yet it's also talking about, it's about to talk about in the Parsha, Yaakov dying, are eight letters long, which are supposed to be the eight letters which are supposed to remain blank. So how are we to understand this tension between that which is written and that which shouldn't be written, between the appearance or the illusion of death and the presence of life? How do all these things reconcile? So, so let's go more deeply into it.
We mentioned that this Parsha begins that the closing off of this Parsha, the rabbis point out that Yaakov Avinu, in his prophecy, wanted to reveal the time of the Mashiach, the end of days, the ultimate fixing of the world, and that his mouth was closed, that he wasn't able to give over what he, what he wanted to give over. So this is another aspect of the closing off, the, the sealing of the opening of this Parsha. Rabbi Wolfson points out something amazing. You see the, the, the Mashiach, the Messianic dimensions in another way as well. Which is the gematria of Parsha Stuma, which means closed Parsha, right? Is the same as the very last prophecy in the entire Torah. The very, very last. If you want to know what's the last line of the entire Torah, the last prophecy, it's in Malachi. And it's talking about the arrival of Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. So, Parsha Stuma equals in Gematria these words Hine Anochi, Sholeach Lechem, as Eliyahu Hanavi. That behold, I will bring before you Elijah the prophet. So you see, contained, again, contained within this closed space is like the secrets of Mashiach. Now, I began a thought a few moments ago. I want to pick up up on it again. The fact that each one of us is a letter in the Torah. And to understand how the Torah itself is the infinite compressed into the finite. And I want to show you how there's a parallel between the construction of the human body and a letter of the Torah. We said that each letter represents tzimtzum, that it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a condensation, a contraction of the infinite light of God down onto, onto a tangible form. Now, the Nefesh HaChayim brings from the Zohar the... the the metaphor, the mushroom, that the human body is the shoe of the soul. So, what does that mean? So, you know, the human soul has five, five different levels to it. There's, there's nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, and yechida. These are the five levels of the human soul. Two of these levels, the chaya and the yechida, exists beyond the, 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 the physical body of a person. And it goes all the way up to the Kisei covet, all the way up to the God's throne of glory, which is, again, a, a, a concept. There's not a chair floating in, in space. But it's, it's, it's basically the emanation of the souls of Israel, all the way at the, at the top of heaven. So, just like a shoe covers a very small part of your body, so your body actually covers a very small part of your soul. Because your soul extends all the way up to the top of heaven. That's you. If you want to know who you are, if you want to know who you're sitting next to, if you want to know who you're interacting with, the person does not end at the top of their head. Every single person extends all the way up to the top of heaven. So we see that the parallel, the comparison between a human being and a letter in the Torah is actually quite exact. 
It's quite phenomenal. Because just like you individually extend to the top of heaven, so each letter extends to that top of heaven as well. So now, Rabbi Wolfson takes this concept and he goes deeper. Actually, that thought was mine, just to keep this record straight. Rabbi Wolfson points out that just like every individual has a letter in the Torah, listen to this, something amazing, every generation also has a letter in the Torah. Now, the generations of Mashiach, where are the letters of those generations? The generations of Mashiach? And the answer is, it's in that, those eight letters of Vayichi Yaakov. In that space that's supposed to be blank, but where it's written, that's where our generation is as well. And again, you have, at the end of days... See, the end of days correlates with the tenth test of Avraham Avinu, Rabbi Wolfson brings out. The tenth test of, of, of Avraham Avinu was a test of faith, a test of emunah. It was, is he, going to, is he going to sacrifice his son Yitzchak, or isn't he? Now, now I'll tell you another gematria. An amazing gematria here. You ready for this? Rabbi Wilson also points out, Parsha Stuma, again, the, the Parsha of this closed space, that those words, Parsha Stuma, is the gematria of these words. The Ele Todos Yitzchak. And these are the generations of Yitzchak. The Balaturim points out that the, that the words right before, and these are the generations of Yitzchak, which is the beginning of Parsha's Toldos, the previous Parsha ends with, with the downfall of Yishmael. And so this is written now a thousand years ago. The Balaturim points out that when the Arab world falls, that will be the time of the Mashiach. So the, the, the falling of Yishmael and these are the generations of Yitzchak. So this correlates with the end of days. So it makes perfect sense that it also is the exact gematria of Parsha Stuma, which is this closed off time where there are letters where there shouldn't be letters. That which is revealed against that which is normally blocked. So the tenth test was, is Abraham going to sacrifice Yitzchak or not? Now, most people learn the nature of this test 100% incorrectly. Here's how most people understand the nature of this test. He loved Yitzchak. He waited until he was 100 years old for Yitzchak. Sarah was 90 years old. The birth was an ace. How could he ever part with this child? Will he? Okay, so the Zohar says that's, that wasn't the test at all. It wasn't even a question. If God asked him to do whatever God asked him to do, Abraham Avinu was ready to do that second. That was not the nature of the test. Okay, so then what was the test? Seems like that would be a pretty good test, right? So what was the nature of the test then? Seemingly God contradicted himself. First, God said, Yitzchak is going to be your legacy, your mission in this world, the whole mission of the Jewish people. 
That's going to be fulfilled through Yitzchak. So, okay, so Abraham understood that, and Yitzchak is born, and miraculously, and it seems like the program is in order. Now God says to him, sacrifice Yitzchak. Well, wait a second. If Yitzchak is supposed to be the fulfillment, and then now you're telling me to kill him, well, that's a contradiction. And God, if you're speaking in contradictions, can I follow your latest command? That was the test in Amunah. Abraham Avinu absolutely didn't understand what God was talking about or how God was making any sense whatsoever. The question is, is Abraham under those circumstances when he can't logically, rationally, rubber stamp, understand what God is directing him to do and where the consequences are enormous? I mean, it's this miracle child we're talking about. Can he listen to God and obey God under those circumstances? It says, the Pesukim say, and this is where the Zohar learns it out from, that they saw the place from afar. It says, Hamakom. Hamakom is a, also means the place, but it also means the name of God. That's one of God's names, Hamakom, the place. In fact, when we console um, someone who's just um, lost a loved one, we, we refer to God in the, in the words of consolement, may, may, may God comfort you with the other mourners of, of Zion and, and Jerusalem. We say, Hamakom Yenachem. That's, that's how we refer to God. And um, uh, the rabbis explain, why are we using, it's not the most common name of God, Hamakom. Why are we, why are we using this name to console someone who's, who's just lost a loved one? And, um, and they explain that basically you should understand that that as much as it seems like you may have lost a loved one, that God, Hamakom, is everywhere. It's translated as the omnipresent one. Literally, it's the place, but it means the omnipresent one. So in other words, you know, you think that the soul is gone? No, the, you exist within the omnipresent, and that soul that's been departed also exists within the omnipresent. You are still with that soul. You are still with that soul. As... Uh, as Reb Shlomo put it one time, I saw him consoling someone. And he said, you know, he said, you should know your mom's left the world, but right now you're, you're closer to your mom than you ever were before. Because before, when she was alive, if you wanted to be with her, you'd have to call her or she'd have to call you. He said, now wherever you are, there she is. So, so this notion of hamakom, that, that you're always with, you're always with that soul. So, that's the consolation. So, the, so Abraham, it says that Hamakom, the place that they were journeying to, Hamaria, where the Akedah was supposed to take place, was far away. So, they understand on a deeper level, from Abraham's point of view, God himself was far away because it seemed like he was, it seemed like he was contradicting himself. So, we said in the name of Rabbi Wolfson, that this tenth test, where it seems that God is contradicting himself, which is Abraham's last test, correlates with the end of days, which is the final test of our exile, where we see God as very far away, or we see all sorts of contradictions in terms of understanding what it is that God wants from us exactly. 
The example that I always like to give is, or belief in God itself, Himself. Two fish talking to each other. And one fish saying to the other fish, do you believe in water? And the other fish answering, I don't believe in water. But my grandfather was very religious. He believed in water. So the joke being that, that God, who's surrounding us constantly, and yet because he's so close, we can't see him. So this is the parallel between the blank space and that which is written in the blank space. It seems blank, but it's right there. Now, it says on a Kabbalistic level, in terms of transmigration of souls and things like this, that Yehuda Hanasi, Rebbe, as he's called, who compiled the Mishnah, that he was a spark from the soul of Yaakov Avinu. Now listen to this. The Mishnah, remember what we said, that those eight, those eight spaces, that there's only one blank space. There's supposed to be nine blank spaces, there's only one blank space. So that means that the, that the eight written letters are supposed to be blank, and that says, Vayichi Yaakov, and Yaakov lived. You know, the Mishnah, which is the great triumph of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who we're saying is a spark from Yaakov, Mishnah, if you rearrange the letters of Mishnah, it spells Shmona, which is eight. So in other words, correlating with those eight spaces which are supposed to be blank, but aren't there. Not only that, but when Rebbe wrote down the Mishnah, that was the Torah Shabal Peh. Now we say that the Torah is black fire written on white fire. The black fire is the Torah Shabek the five books, the written Torah, and the white fire is the Torah Shabal Peh. That's the oral law. That's the Mishnah. That's the Gemara. So, so that blank space, what did Rebbe do? He wrote down that which wasn't supposed to be written, except in the case of an emergency. So in other words, that which was supposed to remain white, he revealed and wrote down. So that blank space, those eight letters which correlates Shmona 8 with Mishnah, which is what he wrote down. He wrote down letters in that which was supposed to be white. In other words, he wrote down the Torah Shabal Peh. That's, that's all from Rabbi Wilson. <laughs> As you can see, I was learning Rabbi Wilson before this talk. <laughs> okay. Let's go more into it. So, so, the importance of small things. You see, you know, I was talking with someone. So how do you communicate God in this environment then? And, uh, and it's very challenging. Because for so many people, it seems like, it seems like God's not there. And, and ironically... Ironically, it seems like, you know, it's kind of a creepy word. I'm not into this word. Someone's going to have to come up with a better, a, 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 a better uh, nomenclature for this. Science, scienceism. 
It just sounds like some some film from the 1950s, you know, with like brains and jars and things like that that, that I, I'd never watch, you know. But um, but there is that. There's this there's this sense, this sort of cult cult of the explainable, you know, that that everything can be explained basically, and um, and ironically, as God reveals Himself more and more in this world, and we see the amazing complexity of, of the human body and of the solar system, for many, many people, as those things become more and more revealed, as the infinity of God becomes more revealed by God Himself, He maintains this amazing dynamic of free choice. He does it through science. So people say, well, it's all science then, right? That's not God. When they see the amazing... Who, who do they celebrate? Most people, I'm talking about the average person, the average sort of like secular person right now. When they see some amazing aspect of the human body that's discovered by a scientist, I think most people, I'm not talking about the, the more spiritually minded person, they'll say, how did that scientist figure that out? He's a genius. As opposed to, as opposed to, look at the infinitely complex, miraculous creation that is the human body. Or is, or is the solar system. God gives us this free choice. As He reveals more and more and more and more, He gives us the ability, increasingly, to credit those revelations to a non-spiritually based entity, namely the, the scientists, if you will. What God is doing in these end of days is He's revealing more and more and yet concealing Himself more and more simultaneously. And the example that I heard, which I think is a great, great example, is the microchip. Think of the microchip. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller and yet contains zillions and zillions of more information. What is that? That's God making Himself so small, and yet, in His smallness, contains His greatness. God is very humble. God is very humble. You know, the, the example that Rabbi Green likes to give, which is that, you know, if you go into a museum, you'll see a, every painting, right? Every painting in the lower corner, you've got the name of the artist signed. Why is it when you stand in front of the Grand Canyon, you don't see, by God, right? You know, or sort of like you look up at the night sky, you know, by God, you know, in letters. That God reveals Himself, and yet in His humility, makes Himself very, very small. And that there's greatness in that. You know, one, one, one teaching that absolutely changed my life is this idea that, that, that you don't necessarily have to be the one to tell someone else a piece of information. That a lot of times that you have to trust this link between being sneeus, sneeus means, you know, modest. 
and being humble. Smiyaskite and humility go hand in hand. And I'll, I'll tell you this link which was just very, very surprising to me. The idea that, that if someone needs to know a piece of information, like there are a lot of people who don't like to give bad news. Sometimes you have to be the one to deliver a piece of information. But sometimes you can trust that if a person really needs to know something, God will communicate that information to them. And the most frightening, the most frightening example of this is that Yitzchak knew the whole time that Yosef was alive and never told Yaakov. On some level, that's even troubling because he sees, he sees the pain that his son Yaakov is in. Right? And yet, they were such spiritual giants and they were both prophets of God that Yitzchak made the calculation came to the conclusion that if God wanted to know, if God wanted Yaakov to know that Yosef was still alive, God would tell Yaakov that Yosef is still alive. That's, uh, that's one, you know, that's one to think about. That's one to think about. But I want to share a conversation that I had because we're, we're talking about this crazy, this crazy time that we're living in right now. This being a letter, being a written letter in this otherwise blank space. Having God reveal himself to us in the most amazing ways through, through information about the universe. And yet, never in our history seeming more hidden than he seems today. So, so someone was saying to me, well, you know, I have a big problem talking with people because, because, because I, I, I feel as though I must express to them that they are commanded to do all of these things and they're not doing them. And, and was seem, seemingly surprised that people didn't want to hear from this person the various things that they're commanded to do that they're not doing. Right? And not only that, more than that, he then said that he didn't question how much people should be encouraged. Because he said, if you, if you encourage someone and, they, and they're reaching their own conclusions, then it seems like you'll just be applauding their wrong decisions. So, while he wasn't representing it like that, I was like, okay, well, let's look at your math now. You, you personally must tell everyone how obligated they are and simultaneously don't encourage them. So, and this person, I have to tell you, is a gem. I love this guy. I actually love this guy. So, it's a confusing time. <laughs> it's a confusing time. Look how even people who are so positively and properly motivated don't even have a clue how to relate to each other. 
So, I want to go and explain, if I can, just a, just a, a piece of imagery that I've kind of just been kind of living with, that, um, that I, I hope that I'll be able to communicate. You know, it says, and we'll end on this point, it says, uh, the whole world is compared to, by, by the prophet, the whole world is compared to a scroll. And, and not only that, but if you look at the evening prayers, we say, you know, the, the word um, galila is when you, after they hold up the Torah, you roll it up. A goel means to roll, right? So the whole world is compared to like a, a, a Torah scroll, okay? Now look what we say in the nighttime prayers. It's in the, in the Siddur, sort of jumping into the middle of the, the first prayer. This is right after Baruchu in, in Mariv. We say, Bore Yom Velayla, Golel, or Umit Nehoshek, Behoshek Neor. So, literally, it means he creates day and night, rolling light before day and darkness before night. In other words, imagine the Torah, you have a Torah scroll before you. This is all of creation. Day rolls into night, night rolls into day. This is our whole life being read and passing before us, right? So, so the rabbis go further. They say that the Torah scroll in itself is a microcosm, or it's a, it's a record of creation, because it begins with Breshis, and it goes all the way. The last word of the Torah is Israel. You know, just like the, the 42 journeys in the desert goes from Egypt to Israel, so that's a, those 42 journeys are a microcosm of, of creation, exile to, to redemption. Israel represents redemption. So look at the Torah scroll itself. It goes from creation, and the last word is Israel, from the creation of the world to the redemption of the world. So you have a blueprint in the Torah of, the whole, of, all, of all of world history, from creation itself, and we, we roll it. We go, we go through it. Not only that, but, but we're marching through the Torah. We're marching through the Torah. Now, when the Jewish people, when the sons of Yaakov, you know, you, you have something very interesting, which is the ordering of the tribes. And Ruvain is first, like on the breast, breastplate of the, of the high priest, of the clan Gadol. It's got Ruvain, and then you know, it continues on, Shimon, and then Levi, right? But, but interestingly, when they marched through the desert, when the Jews marched through the des- desert as a nation, Yehuda goes first. It's a whole different, whole different order. So, where, where, did, where did they get that order from? The marching through the desert. And the answer is, returning back to the beginning of this Parsha, Parsha's Vayechi, which is the death of Yaakov Avinu, it's how the sons of Yaakov were arranged around his deathbed. And that's how they marched through the desert. In that same thing. Now listen to this. Yaakov, we say, Titan Emet the Yaakov. So Yaakov is, correlates with Emet, which is the truth. And we also say Torah to Emet, that the Torah is the truth. 
So Yaakov and the Torah are the same. So when we marched through the desert, what was in the middle? Just like Yaakov was in the middle between the sons, what was in the middle between all the tribes? The Ark of the Torah itself. So you have an exact parallel. Now what did we say? We said that each one of us, not only us, but the generations are letters in the Torah. And we said that as we go through the Torah, we're going through human history. So all of us are marching with the Torah. Through the Torah, we are the Torah. Marching through the Torah, with the Torah. (laughs) And we're marching toward redemption. Because we're marching toward the end. And you know, every single week, it's just sort of like we roll day into night, day into night. Time passes. And, and that's what it is. That's what it is. And you know, there's such a temptation more and more today. I call it the cult of celebrity that we're living in. Where unless a person somehow is, is, a, is famous or, you know, quote unquote famous or on the cover of some uh, entertainment magazine, <laughs> that somehow they don't count. This is also part of the darkness of today. To realize this parallel between your own absolute giantness and the fact that everything around you will deny that essential aspect of reality and of your being. So, so as we march toward Yisrael, literally, literally, let's realize who we are and what we're doing and the light that we're bringing to the darkness.